Yeah. Come on now. That's, that might be the biggest twist that you've ever seen in a video slash movie ever. Nobody saw that coming, right? Come on. That's right. You're like, oh man, Stranger Things, been there, done that. Oh, what's that new logo? Oh, what? Christmas, what? Right? Come on. Hey, we are starting a new series, and obviously I'm a little bit more excited about it than you are, and that's, that's okay, because you will get there. So we are starting a brand new series tonight called Stranger Things. How many of you guys have seen it? I will not condone it. I will not encourage you to read it or to watch it or see it. If you've seen it, that's cool. If you haven't, that's cool too. Uh, I'm not going to tell you whether you should or shouldn't, but a lot of you guys have seen it. Uh, it is all the rage. It's, it's trending and cool and awesome. And so, so many of you guys have seen that. Actually, my wife and I just finished it over Thanksgiving break, watched the last couple of episodes. Can you believe in the end when... Just, just kidding. Chill out. No, so we're starting a new series, Stranger Things. And you're like, hey, what's the deal? Stranger Things, because this is Stranger Things with a twist. How can we do a Christmas series with the title Stranger Things, right? That's what you're thinking right now, isn't it? This doesn't make sense. I can't add it up. All right, so here's the deal. And it makes perfect sense in my head, all right? So I'm about to clue you guys in on what in the world we're about to do for the next few weeks. So we're in this series called Stranger Things. And let's be honest. There are, in this Christmas season that we have just headed into, just beginning, there are a lot of Christmas traditions, things that we do this time of year that are just strange. They're different. They don't make sense, right? Now, they're normal to us because they're traditions and we grew up that way and that's what we've always done. So we've just even lost any kind of perspective about how weird and strange the things that we do at this time of year really are. But you will, I promise, if you get married one day, you will have the moment when you will have that conversation with your spouse who will be like, you do what at Christmas? Your family does what? What do you mean you dress up in cat sweaters and you drink porridge on Christmas Eve and you tell each other ghost stories? That's not normal. That's weird. Or whatever weird tradition you may have, right? Up until now, it's like, hey, this is normal. This is what we do. Everybody probably does that, right? And your spouse one day will go, no, that's not normal. That's strange. That's weird. You're weird. All right, and my wife and I, maybe I'm just the only one, but my wife and I had that conversation multiple occasions where she's like, what? You do what at Christmas? Your family does what? So there are a lot of crazy traditions that we do, right? And we don't really think about it because it's normal to us. For example, how many of you dipped out on Thanksgiving early or you left the Thanksgiving table altogether and you got in line, drove into crazy traffic so that you could fight people for 20 bucks off of a vacuum, right? How many of you guys went Black Friday shopping? See? And, you, and that's normal, right? And I actually made fun of those people until about a couple years ago, and then we started doing that. And it actually is kind of fun. It is kind of fun. Um, as long as you're not buying a vacuum or a TV or an iPad pod or what iPad or iPhone or I whatever whatever it is you're buying on Black Friday all right you got a new sweater and you're wearing it tonight and you look lovely and maybe you got that Black Friday shopping but that's weird that's just a strange tradition um what about this one what about 
how whether, and whether it's Black Friday or whether over the next month we will spend money that we don't have, and right, and you're teenagers, most of you don't have much money. So we spend money we don't have on people that we don't really like to buy them things that they don't need. Right? That's strange. Why do we do that? But we do that year after year. Right? And we have people do that for us. And we're like, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. And then you open up, you're like, really? You don't really like me, do you? And they're like, no, I don't. But I had to get you something. There you go. There's a cat poster. So whatever the case may be, we put lights on our house. We put candles in the windows, fire hazard. We put, and then we go really super crazy and we put inflatable minions in our front yard. What the heck is this about? It's, if you want to put like Santa or reindeer or something, that's fine. All right. But what in the world is this about? I've actually got a neighbor in our subdivision who has like five of these in their front yard. And I don't understand what the, what the point is. There actually, I read today that there are 13,000 people every year who visit the emergency room because of Christmas decorations, right? So like we put ourselves at risk and 13,000 of us go to the emergency room because we fall off a ladder trying to string lights on our house or putting candles in the window or putting these gigantic crazy things up, right? That's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Or we put out milk and cookies on Christmas Eve for this fat guy who's breaking and entering and trespassing in our house, down our chimney, breaking all kinds of crimes, but not to take stuff from us, but to give us presents. And it is real, all right? But it's strange. It's just a strange tradition. And he has flying reindeer, and he lives at the North Pole with his elves, right? Like, how crazy is that? But my favorite one, my favorite strange Christmas, Christmas tradition of all is the Christmas tree. The epic moment when we find that Christmas tree. Now, this, this is from Christmas Vacation, if you haven't seen that movie. But this is like a picture of my family growing up, okay? So when... My mom and dad, five of us siblings were younger. And I don't know why, but we always look forward to this. When, the day when we would go and find our Christmas tree. So we would all pile into the Volvo at that, when we were younger or then a Suburban. And we would drive out to the middle of nowhere. And we would find this gigantic cedar tree, which was the type of tree that for whatever reason, that was our Christmas tree. And we would cut this thing down. We would throw it on top of our roof. We would bring it to the house we would stick it in the living room and then we would string it with lights and these little trinkets and stuff. And every year we would have to water the crap out of this thing to make sure that it, that it didn't dry up. And every year, no matter how much we tried against it, it would always smell like throw up. Always. Has your tree ever smelled like throw up? That, would, that was literally every year. And this is the tradition that my wife would make fun of us the most. First of all, she's like, cedar tree is not even a Christmas tree. I don't know what that, th that mangly thing is in your living room. But then it smells like throw up. And I don't know, you know, one year we put it up on the 23rd of December, which is like, mom, dad, what's, what's the point of this? Right? But that's a, a crazy tradition. But what makes it even more strange is that you do it too. Whether it's an artificial tree or another tree, probably not a cedar or a pine or whatever other trees, fir, whatever. You use, we all do this. We put a tree. How weird is that? 
that we cut down a tree and stick it in our living room and put lights and stuff on it as like a decoration piece for a month. That's just bizarre and strange. So there are a lot of strange Christmas traditions that we have. But these Christmas traditions are not the only strange things that take place at Christmas. Have you ever thought about how strange the Christmas story is? Right? The greatest story that's ever been told, the greatest story that's ever happened will ever happen. God loves us enough, sends the Messiah, the Savior, down to earth, is born as a baby, comes and is for the purpose of rescuing us from our sins and repairing our broken relationship with God. Right? An incredible story, the greatest story ever. So why are there barnyard animals and shepherds and a virgin involved in it? Right? What's the purpose of that? Why are all those other different aspects to it? Now, I mean, think about it. You and I, just like our, tr- our Christmas traditions, we're used to it, so we don't really think it's that big of a deal. But think about for a moment what you know about the Christmas story. Now think about this and ask yourself this question. If you were God and you could write the story of the Savior of the world coming to rescue people, would you do it the way that God did it? Probably not. Right? You'd probably come up with something a whole lot different than the story that we have become familiar with, the story that we know about. And it's just strange. And if you and I were going to rewrite the story of Christmas, not that we have the ability to do, to do that or whatever, but if we were to do that, we'd probably start at the place where Jesus was born. That's probably where we'd start. Now, in Luke chapter 2, we're told exactly where that place is that the Savior of the world starts at, where he's born. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to open to Luke chapter 2, you can go ahead and do that. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 2. So here's what the writer says, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. Obviously. And while they were there, this time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Or as some versions say, there was no room in the inn. Now, you and I know this story, right? So it seems normal. We've, that's probably not the first time that you've read that passage or or heard about that passage, right? So for the majority of us, we're probably familiar with this story. But take a step back and just think about how strange this is. The Messiah finds himself born and placed in a manger, which was a feeding box for animals. It was probably dirty, smelly, definitely not 
the most sanitized place for you to have a baby. Probably the least sanitized place for you to have a baby. And so we often, we hear this story because there's, we hear about a manger and then we think, well, then there's barnyard animals. And so tradition, like we, we, we sometimes picture that there's a stable or a barn and that's where Jesus was born in. But we're never told that. But because we see manger and then we think, well, there had to have been animals and it well, where do animals live? So we've kind of come up with this stable or barn, but there's a lot of, of historians that actually believe that it was a cave, that Jesus was born in a cave and placed in this manger. Is that where you would think God in the flesh would start out? Not at all. How strange is that? That that's the beginning point of the greatest story that's ever been told. Now, for us to fully understand exactly how strange this is, we've got to go back and understand exactly what was predicted about Jesus in the Old Testament. So the Jewish people, Jesus' people, the people that he had come to, was born in and, and, and come primarily to rescue, the Jewish people had been looking forward to the Messiah's arrival for hundreds, even thousands of years. All right, this was part of God's plan before the beginning of time, before he ever created man and woman, before sin ever entered into the world, God knew that he was going to send Jesus down to earth to save humankind. And his plan is first revealed in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. So Israel, throughout their history, has been told that they need to anticipate this Messiah that's coming to rescue them. So there are about 400 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament that are actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So all of these prophecies and these people that, that read these prophecies about this Messiah, they had these ideas of, hey, he's coming to save people from their sins. He's coming to help rescue the oppressed you know, people of Israel. And uh, he's coming to bring justice. In fact, Isaiah chapter 42 is one of those prophecies that's talking about the Messiah. And, and it gives a clear picture of probably what a lot of people were anticipating how the story was going to be told. So in Isaiah chapter 42, here's what it says. And this is God talking about the Messiah, about Jesus. Verse one, he says, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. Verse six, I, the Lord, have called you, talking about the Messiah, to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. That's one of the prophecies that's told of the Messiah. Doesn't really speak a whole lot about a cave and a manger and animals and a virgin, at least in that particular passage. And so there's 
probably a lot. And in this particular case, this, this particular, Isaiah chapter 42 is written about 700 years before Jesus came. But it's predicting and talking about the birth of Jesus. So what many people anticipated is some of the things that you read about in here. They're picturing this great Messiah who's coming to rule and to reign in justice and power. There's a lot of people that thought that the Messiah would come as some great king of Israel who would sit on the throne and he would defeat whatever great enemy was coming to capture Israel at the time, whether it was Babylon or Persia or in this case when Jesus is born, Rome. And let's be honest, that sounds a little bit more like the story that you and I would create. Right? We would create this kind of epic Memorial Day, you know, movie event with explosions and the hero comes in on the Millennium Falcon and, you know, he comes and he rescues the people and, and saves people from their sins and, and you know, the, the people that are oppressed, right? And then roll credits. And that's kind of what we would create if you and I were in charge of writing this story. But that's not how the Messiah rolls into town. Jesus turns everything on its head with his arrival. It's almost like the upside down, but in a good way. See what I did there? No? But think about this. Rather than coming with glory and recognition... His birth is a humble one. Instead of being born in the biggest palace in a great ancient city like Rome or even Jerusalem, he's born in some podunk little village in an insignificant part of the world called Bethlehem. And even then, he's not even born in the biggest house in that village. His parents can't even find a place to stay in the local La Quinta How strange is that? There's not even any place for them there in that inn. That they just get completely sent out into, and they have to stumble upon this cave. And that's where the Messiah, that's where the story of the Messiah coming to earth starts. Now, as I've been trying to get my head around this and just try to understand this perspective of this great Messiah coming down in the most humblest of places. I started thinking about my own birth. So I was born in Virginia Baptist Hospital in Lynchburg, Virginia in, don't laugh, 1978. December of 1978, all right? So it was the end of 1978. December of 1978. And because I was a Christmas baby, born a week before Christmas, my parents actually brought me home from the hospital like this. Check out this picture. There you go. You probably can't see that red. That was a stocking. That was the day that I was brought home from the hospital. That's me in a stocking coming home from the hospital right before Christmas. Right? Now, to make this even more incredible, more awesome for our family, our youngest, Avery, was born... Uh, not the same year, obviously, but a few days. His birthday is a few days after mine. And so we actually brought him home in the exact same way. Is that not the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life? 
So myself and my son were born in a normal hospital and we were even brought home in a really cool way in this stocking that was probably warm and really snuggly and we didn't want to get out of it. I'm sure for most, if not all of you, you were born in a hospital. And from the moment you were born, you had doctors and nurses that were in the room and ready to take great care of you. Right? And so they were waiting on you and watching over you 24-7. When you weren't in mom's hand or dad's hand or whatever, you were probably under the care of these trained professionals who had extensive training, who knew what they were doing and how best to care for you from the first moments of your arrival. It was sanitary and it was warm and it was clean. And you had the most modern technology that was there to make sure that you were as healthy as you could possibly be. In other words, all of us had a more noble birth than the savior of the world. Now get your mind around that for a minute. Now I get it. That's 2000 years ago and they didn't have hospitals all that much, or they definitely didn't have a whole lot of modern technology that we have and things like that. But most babies, even during that time, were not born in a, in a cave and put in a manger. All right. They were born probably in a house, in a warm room in front of a fireplace or something like that. That's where they were born. So you just think about how humble this was for Jesus. And if you were looking for the savior of the world, the very last place that you would look would be in a manger inside a cave in a small village in a little country called Israel. And as strange as that is, I think that's what makes it so incredible. Because from the very moment Jesus breathes the first breath, it sets the standard for his whole life. And it paints a great picture for us of what he was all about. See, the world wants a king who is powerful and prideful, but Jesus came in humility. The world wants a king to enjoy the spotlight, but Jesus was born very much in the background. The world wants a king to be served and to bow down to, but Jesus came to serve. So from the very beginning of his life, Jesus was an outcast. Jesus was not someone that was famous, someone that was well-known, someone that was full of notoriety. There was no spotlight on him. And it would be the theme of his life on earth from beginning to the end leading up to his criminal's death on a cross. So if you've ever had moments where you felt like an outcast or a nobody, if you've ever had moments where you felt despised or rejected, then Jesus can relate so much to those moments that you felt. Some of the Old Testament prophecies actually said that he would be despised and rejected by the very people that he came to save. But he did it anyway. And with that, 
He gave you and me a great example of how we should live too. In Matthew chapter 20, as Jesus is carrying out his earthly ministry, here's what he says to the disciples. In verse 25, he says, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave or must become last. For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when you and I think about the manger, when we see the picture of that manger, and when we take a step back and we understand how strange that is, it allows us to see the picture of who Jesus was and what he was all about. And I don't know about you, but when you get a picture that Jesus was not some ordinary king, that we, we know Jesus as the king of all kings, and yet he came in as this humble king, not like an ordinary king, that I don't know what that stirs up in you. But for me, when I, when I understand that, when I get a clear picture of that's who Jesus was, man, it makes me love him even more. How ridiculous would it be for Jesus to be born in some palace in royalty and then to die the criminal's death? It doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is giving us an example, not just of how he wants, he chose to live, but how he wants us to live as well. And so I don't know about you, but the response for me is, and I, I want to worship him. I want to follow after him. I want to submit to his authority. Because I understand that he left heaven and humbled himself not just to be one of the greatest people on earth among royalty and, and that kind of thing, but actually humbled himself to the very lowest of lows that he could possibly go to. That that was the depth of his love for us. That was how willing he was to carry out the plan of the Father on our behalf. Here's the main point for us tonight. The manger reminds us that Jesus isn't an ordinary king, but a humble king who came to give up his life for us. So now do you see that as strangely perfect? Like maybe we just took it for granted. Maybe we just assumed, maybe it was a little bit odd or whatever. But we're able to look at that and go, how strange and weird is that? And yet how incredibly beautiful and perfect is that? So what does that stir up in you? When you understand that Jesus loved you enough that he humbled himself in that way from the very beginning to serve you and to serve me. What does that do to you? 
How does that change your perspective of God's love for you? The love that we sang about that we're like, man, I can't really fathom this. Does that help you understand a little bit more? Man, God, you did love me that much. And what does that stir up in us and cause us to respond with? Are we willing, just like Jesus humbled himself and served us, are we willing to take on that same attitude and humble ourselves to serve those around us? Let's pray together. God, thank you for a strange, weird, odd, and yet beautiful and powerful story that you've given to us that sometimes we so often take for granted, just like these traditions that we have. We just sort of forget about it. We take it for granted. God, I pray that you would, in this moment, allow us to to recalibrate and to focus our minds on just how amazing your love is for us. That you would leave heaven and you would carry out the will of the Father and you would humble yourself to the point of just complete rejection, embarrassment almost, that other people later on would go, how could Jesus be the Messiah when he comes from the place of Nazareth? God, you were willing to do that, to show us your love for us, that the king of all kings humbled himself and became obedient to a birth in the manger and death on a cross. God, may that cause us to fall more in love with you than we ever have before. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.